Welcome to the Rockcast. I am your host, Monty Colvin. So glad you could join me. I've got a lot to talk about today, and I'm going to start off by telling you about something that I'm really excited about. In fact, I'm going to brag a little bit. And I know that when you think of me, you think of me as a very humble person. That's not true! But just try to cut me some slack this one time. F you, you jerk. But before I tell you what it is, I've got to give you a little background story. And for some of you who have listened to this podcast for a long time, you'll already know this. But when I was in high school back in the 70s, I started listening to the band Kansas. I had an 8-track tape of their first album, and I bought Song for America, Mask, and Left Overture on vinyl. And around 78, I went to see him in concert on the uh, Point of No Return tour. And it was the first time I'd ever seen him, and they just blew my mind. And Robbie Steinhardt, who just passed away, God rest his soul, came out and did a violin solo right before they kicked into Magnum Opus. And they were just so good, and Steve Walsh has been one of my favorite singers all these years. But the thing that affected me the most from that whole show was Kerry Livgren. I knew he was writing most of the music and he was a hero already for that reason. But when I saw him playing all that stuff on the keyboards and then he would walk over and pick up his guitar and just wail on a solo, I was just mesmerized and I was just like, I want to be like that guy. So much so that when I got home from that concert, I did a painting of him. And it wasn't as good as the paintings I do now, but uh, I kept it all these years. I still have it. Anyway, all that to say, I was a huge fan. And so I followed him through the rest of his career with Kansas, and I was disappointed when he left Kansas. But when I got his first solo album, Seeds of Change, I was like, this is awesome. I love it. Well, the years went by. I ended up becoming a musician myself. I wrote songs, some of them that were inspired by Kansas. And as you know, my band Galactic Cowboys ended up getting signed and making many albums. Well, around 1998, I think it probably was, uh, we were playing a show in Kansas City, Missouri, which is where I was living at the time. And before the show, Carrie Livgren's nephew came up to me and said, Hey, I'm Jake Livgren. Carrie wanted to be here tonight. And he sent these t-shirts. He's a fan of you guys. And I looked at them, and they were these Carrie Livgren t-shirts. And I said, are you kidding me? The Carrie Livgren likes us? And he said, yes. But somehow in the back of my mind, I was just like, no, that can't be real. But I also thought, you know, if it is true, how awesome is that? One of my heroes has actually heard something that I did. Well, a year or so later, I hear that Carrie's going to be doing kind of a speaking engagement and playing some songs, and he was going to be doing it at a place that was just down the street from me. Well, I go and I watch, and afterwards there's a line of people waiting to get his autograph. And I wait till almost everybody's through, and then I go up to him and I kind of sheepishly go, Hi, Carrie, I just wanted to say hi, I'm Monty. I play in this band called Galactic Cowboys. And he looks up and he says, hey, I love you guys. And I say, oh, man, that's amazing. And I tell him, you know, what a big fan I am of his. And then I just kind of turn around and I start to walk away. And I take a few steps and all of a sudden he says, hey, Monty, would you ever want to sing or play on one of my albums? And I turn around and I said, get real. I'm a rock star. No way. What a lying SOB. Well, actually, what I did say was, oh, my God, that would be such an honor. There you go. And if that's where the story would have ended, that would have been okay with me. 
Just knowing that he wanted me to play on one of his albums uh, would have been enough. But a year or so later, I got contacted that Kerry wanted me to come to his house in Topeka, Kansas to record. And I get there and he's got a full-on studio out in the back outside of his house. And we talk for a little bit and he explains to me what I'm doing. And he tells me that he's got a vocal part on a project that he's working on. And he says it's a concept album, kind of a cantata, if you will, that was taken from the Bible, and it's the story of Lazarus. And he shows me the part, and I'm like, cool, let's do it. And so we go in the vocal room, and he's setting up my vocal mic, and I'm just standing there getting ready, and I'm all nervous. And all of a sudden he goes, hey, I've got a question. And I say, yeah, go ahead. And he's like, uh, the phone conversations at the end of Where Are You Now? Uh, were those real? And I laughed and uh, said, well, no. But uh, I'm also thinking, wow, this guy actually knows the music. He's actually listened to our albums. That's hard to believe. And so once again, that just blew my mind. And uh, we went ahead and recorded the part. And uh, it turned out pretty good, I think. And afterwards, we went out to dinner. He told me some old stories about Kansas back in the day. And I went home and bragged about it for years. But the years kept passing and still no album from Carrie. But I thought, well, one day it'll come out and man, will that ever be cool. In the meantime, I asked Carrie if he'd play a guitar solo on one of my Crunchy albums, which he did. And if you have the Loserville album, you know he played on the song Rockstar Now. So that was another thrill of my life. But still, you know, it'd been about 20 years now since I recorded that part for Carrie on his album. And still no word until this year. Because I'm a friend of Carrie's on Facebook and I kept seeing him kind of hint at the fact that it was almost done. And then about a month ago, he finally announced, yes, it's done and it's going to come out in August. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I get a message from Carrie, and he says, Hey, Monty, uh, I need your address. I've got the CD, and I'm going to send you one. And I open it up, and I'm reading all the names of the people who are on the album. And it's got musicians like Phil Kagey and, of course, Carrie Livgren. But I also see every original member of Kansas. And I'm going down the list, and it's got, like, Phil Ehart on drums. And then in this exact order, it says Rich Williams, Steve Walsh, Monty Colvin, Robbie Steinhardt, and Dave Hope. And my exact thoughts were, uh, holy crap. I saw every one of these guys in 1978, thought they were brilliant, and now my name is right in the middle of them. And I don't even know what to say about that other than uh, thank you God, thank you Carrie Livgren because that was truly a dream come true. And it is such an honor to be a part of something like this and uh, to be a friend of somebody like Carrie Livgren. But I wanted to tell you about it. The album is called The Resurrection of Lazarus, a cantata by Carrie Livgren. So I hope you'll find it and buy it. I'm not going to play any of it on this episode. I'm going to listen to it a lot and then hopefully play you some cuts next time. So there's something to look forward to. You are awesome. All right, so that's that. Now I'm going to do something kind of special that I think a lot of you Galactic Cowboy fans are really going to like. But before I get to that, I've got one more thing to tell you about. Recently, I discovered something about myself that I did not know. And frankly, it was kind of a revelation. And no, I'm not gay. Yes, you are. No, no, I'm not. But I did go to the doctor the other day. And after talking to him and looking at all the test results they did on me the last time I was there, it was finally determined that, uh, yes, I am indeed old. Wow! Yeah, I have kind of had my suspicions about this for a while. But by the time I walked out of there, uh, there was no doubt in my mind. He not only told me I had to keep taking the pills that he had given me the last time, 
He prescribed two or three more. I am not only a type 2 diabetic with high blood pressure, apparently now my cholesterol is also just way too high. So even though I've never done recreational drugs, I never smoked pot, I never smoked cigarettes or cigars, I've never drank beer or alcohol really at all, I've stayed active most of my life, and I only weigh about 183 pounds. According to my doctor, I'm a walking time bomb that could just die at any minute. And that's when it dawned on me. I'm 62. I'm old. And I thought, maybe it's time for me to check into some social security benefits. You know? Maybe I could just retire. You know, I'm tired most of the time, so why not just get retired? And so I talked to my girlfriend, Alex, about it, and she thought that was a good idea. But I said, you know, maybe I should also start eating a little better. Maybe instead of eating 10 tacos, I'll just have six. I think that that's extraordinarily healthy. And I also told her, you know, maybe we should just start exercising every day. We don't necessarily have to lift weights and all that. Maybe we could just walk. And she said, yeah, that'd be great, but what are we going to do this winter when it snows? And I thought about it, and I said, ah, I got it. The mall. There's a mall just down the street. We can go there. We can buy some of those white sketcher shoes, and we can be uh, mall walkers. Ay ay ay. Yeah, and again, I realized, uh, wow, I'm old. How true it is. That's right, I'm 62, I'm going on social security, and I'm gonna be a mall walker, damn it. Holy crap! Yeah, that's right, I said it. However, the main difference between me and the other mall walkers is besides mall walking, I will also be occasionally going to a Megadeth concert. That to me is tremendously exciting. That's right, and if you don't like it, you can get off my lawn. I'm an old man! Alright, so anyway, uh, I'll be telling you about the Megadeth concert later on in the show. But right now, let's get down to the business at hand. The other day, I was on Facebook, and I had a whole bunch of people tell me that it had been 30 years since the first Galactic Cowboys album was released. And I'll be totally honest, I was not aware of that, but I thought about it and I thought, you know, I guess it has been 30 years. It came out in 1991 and it is now 2021. And once again, it made me feel really old. But I mentioned it to Alex and she thought it was really cool. And she said, you know, you should talk about it on the next podcast. And I said, hmm, okay, well, yeah, people would probably like that. And she said something to the effect of maybe you should just talk about all the songs. And I said, you know something? That's a great idea. I think the fans would actually enjoy that. And so what I'm going to do is go track by track through the entire album. I did this when I started the podcast about 12 years ago, but I know a lot of people didn't hear that. Or if you did hear it, you probably forgot what I had to say about it. So let's do it again, and you've got my girlfriend Alex to thank for that. So let me get started by giving you a brief summary and a few details on what was going on back then. Do we have to do this? Alright, so most of you know the story. Me and the drummer Alan Doss were in a band called The Awful Truth, and we quit. And he came over to my apartment, and we started writing together. And the first thing we came up with was a song called In the Clouds, which was on our last album that we just did back in 2017. We did a demo of that where Alan and I played all the instruments. And then I took my little four-track recorder over to Ben Huggins' house and uh, had him sing on it. And so that was kind of his audition, and we liked what we heard. After that, I invited Dane Saunier to come over to my apartment. And I showed him a bunch of songs and riffs and things I'd been working on, and he picked it right up. In the meantime, Alan and I had been working on a song that had a bunch of weird parts to it. And I was playing in this metal riff that was going... And he's sitting there with his guitar, and he starts playing this flamenco thing. And I'm like, wow, that's really different, but that's kind of cool. So the four of us got together in a rehearsal space... 
And as we were showing Ben and Dane the song, Ben asked me if I had any words. And I said, well, I was thinking about writing about those kids that got abducted down in Mexico. But all I've got so far is the chorus, and I want it to be something like, uh, I'm not amused, or something like that. So Ben wrote the rest of the words, and we did a demo for it. And we already had a manager at that point. It was Sam Taylor. And we gave him the tape, which also had another song on there called Blind. And he loved it, and he loved the band. And he ended up putting us on tour with King's X before we were ever signed. And we did the whole thing in a car where we just travel around from show to show. And it was not exactly easy. At one point, the car broke down. And at times, we were exhausted and we were playing for mostly people that didn't know who we were. But before that tour was even over, we actually had an offer from a record label. And when we got back to Houston, we did a showcase for a bunch of labels. And only six months after we had been together, we got signed to Geffen Records. And we went to this little studio there in Houston called Rampart, which is where we'd recorded the Awful Truth album. And King's X had also recorded their first album there. And like King's X, we had Sam Taylor as our producer. And one of the first songs we started to record was the song I'm Not Amused, which ended up being the album opener. I've always felt like I'm Not Amused kind of described who we were on that first album. It had all these different musical styles jammed together and then these four-part harmony vocals. In this one song, we had Spanish acoustic guitar, you had thrash riffs, you had bluesy kind of stuff, and then you had Beatle-type vocals. It was quirky, it was different, and it was just who we were. And when it was time to pick a single, Geffen actually wanted to go with kind of a ballady song called My School. But we wanted to go with a song that kind of represented us more. And so we went with this song, I'm Not Amused, and we made a video for it and got a little bit of play on MTV. But did people really get it? Eh, I'm not so sure. I think a lot of people thought it was interesting, kind of cool, but uh, then there was just a lot of people that I don't think got it at all. They just thought it was weird. Regardless, we used to open our shows with this song, and we got a lot of looks and reactions that ranged from uh, what the hell is this, to flipping us off and throwing stuff at us, to I've never heard anything like this in my life, I love it.
The second song on the album was the before-mentioned My School, which begins with an eight-string bass part that I came up with when I was in The Awful Truth. I wrote the verse and chorus on an old beat-up acoustic guitar, and then I wrote the heavy middle parts on my Charvel Strat that I had at the time. I wrote this song about uh, a class reunion that I did not attend. I've actually never gone to one of my high school uh, reunions, still haven't, but I was looking at a picture somebody had posted of uh, one of those reunions, and I was seeing my old classmates and what they looked like now, and it just kind of got me to reminiscing and thinking about my old high school days. And honestly, when I was in high school, I was very shy. I uh, felt very uncool. And I played on the basketball team, but uh, outside of that, I didn't have a lot of friends, maybe one or two. And consequently, my senior year when I bought a guitar, I just ended up spending a lot of time in my bedroom just practicing. And so not being popular actually turned out to be a good thing. song is why can't you believe in me it starts out with just some bass that you probably thought was guitar but no it was distorted bass a bunch of heavy riffs and a chorus but I didn't have words for it so Ben wrote uh, the majority of the lyrics and we all got together one day and practice and decided that uh, each one of us would take a vocal part on the chorus and when we heard the harmonies that we were making uh, we just all looked at each other and went wow this may work why can't you be Song number four is Captain Crude. I wrote this song about the Valdez oil spill. 
Now, I'm not a environmentalist at all, and when I wrote this, I was not into politics at all. I had just heard somebody on TV say that the captain of the ship had gotten drunk and he had crashed and that there was oil everywhere. And so, no, I wasn't trying to make any kind of statement. I just thought it'd make a cool song. song was originally not part of the songs that were going to go on the album. In fact, when we started recording the album, it hadn't even been written yet. But Geffen kept delaying the release of the album uh, until Guns N' Roses was finished with their uh, Use Your Illusion albums. And so while we were waiting, I ended up writing this. It's tuned down to C, it grooves, it's heavy, it thrashes. But by the end, it just kind of turned into a psychedelic Beatles kind of thing. Song number five is Someone for Everyone. I've had people over the years tell me that this song meant a lot to them, that they think it's beautiful, and I've even had people tell me they played it at their wedding. And I think that's great, but uh, to me, it's still the sappiest song I've ever written. And back in 91, when the album came out, and I read in a magazine that said, this song is like too much syrup being poured over a pancake. Uh, well, I had to agree with them. However, I did play my 12-string bass on it, and uh, it is true. My dad really did tell me there's someone for everyone. And he told me that because when I was around 25, I had my doubts as to whether I could even find somebody who would date me, much less marry me. But I did. Uh, but unfortunately, things did not work out uh, either time. So the moral of the story, yes, there's someone for everyone. But there's also no guarantees that they won't end up hating you. The next song on the album was Sea of Tranquility, and it starts out with kind of a monster bass solo. I don't remember which bass I was using on that song, but I do know that I was playing through a Marshall Stack guitar rig, and I also had a pedal hooked up that was called a Metal Master, and it was just full-on distorted bass, and I wanted to do a bass solo. 
And so I did one in the studio that was way longer. But when Sam Taylor took the tapes to get mastered, he cut the solo down to almost nothing. And I was really pissed. But looking back, I'm alright with it now. And I still got to start the song anyway. This is one of the first songs that Alan and I ever wrote together. And we both had a bunch of cool riffs and put it all together and then Ben added the lyrics. And it's been one of my favorite songs to play live all these years. And it's also just one of my favorites that we ever put on an album. And if you think about it, we did this song in 1990. It was thrash metal with harmony vocals. And I don't think there was anybody doing that back then. Uh, besides us, and I don't think anyone's done it since. And I'll never forget playing this song for Phil Anselmo of Pantera back then. It hadn't even been released yet, and the look on his face was just classic. It was just this puzzled expression like, what on earth am I hearing? The next song is Kill Floor, and I wrote this around 1989 when I was out in western Kansas visiting my then in-laws. And my father-in-law told me this story about this guy who worked in a meatpacking plant in Garden City, Kansas. And the guy's job was to hit cows over the head with a sledgehammer. And if that sounds insane, well yeah, and apparently it drove the guy insane. And so what else could I do but write a song about it? So after hearing the story that my father-in-law had told me, I went down to the basement of their house and I had a guitar down there and I wrote the song. And I recently got a message from Matt in St. Louis who had some questions about songwriting. Such as, what usually comes first, the lyrics, melodies, or the music? Well, for me, all different ways. A lot of times I'll get a lyrical idea that will actually lead to a melody. But then other times I'll just have a melody come into my head and I don't know where it comes from. And I don't even know what the words are going to be until later. But then I've had other songs that just started with a riff. 
And that would lead me to Matt's next question, which was, do you have to work really hard on coming up with riffs, or do they just come naturally? And to that, I would say once again, they come all different ways. I've had riffs and parts come along very easily while I was in the shower, but there's also been songs and riffs that came about just from hours and hours of jamming and riffing and playing. And on a couple of occasions, some cool stuff has come about just uh, by accident. For instance, song number eight on our first album was called Pump Up the Spacesuit. One day we were standing around in practice and I just started playing that bass riff. And to me, it was kind of a thrash riff because that's what I was into. But when Alan and Dane both kicked in, it was more like funk. Next thing you know, Ben's doing kind of a rap thing over the top of it. And within a few minutes, we had a song for the album. Song number nine was Ranch on Mars Reprise, and it was written specifically for the album as a segue. We needed a way to get from Pump Up the Spacesuit to Speak to Me, and we already had a song called Ranch on Mars or a Galactic Cowboy theme song, but Geffen didn't want us to put it on the album, so we came up with this, and that's why it's a reprise. The last song on the album was called Speak To Me. I wrote this on my couch in my apartment on an acoustic guitar. And I took it in and showed it to the guys. Ben finished the lyrics. And then we added a big middle part to it and a massively long ending. And it turned into a 10 minute epic. Now the song ends and you think the album is over, when all of a sudden a weird jazz thing starts happening. That would have been strange enough, but then we decided to end our first album ever with the reading of a lunch menu. Now how did that come about? 
Well, one day while recording the album, I was in the vocal booth, and the engineer said, I need to get some levels, just say some stuff. Well, rather than saying check one, two over and over, I decided to have some fun. And I remembered when I was in high school, I used to listen to the radio every morning, and this nerdy guy would read the lunch menus to all the little schools around the area. And so I did an impersonation of him, and apparently the tape was rolling, and for some reason, God only knows why, we decided to put that on the album. Good morning, students. The Tompkinar 5 School District lunch menu for today. Shepherd's pie, breaded carrot and raisin cup, seasoned green beans, fudge sickles, a cookie, half pint of cold milk, and for the Catholic students, fish. It all seems incredibly stupid now, but hey, we were who we were. We were talented, we were a little goofy at times, but we were fearless. We weren't afraid to try anything to see if it would work. Some of it did, some of it probably didn't, but that's the chance you take. But there you have it, that's a rundown of the first Galactic Cowboys album 30 years later. If you're a fan of that stuff, I hope you enjoyed that because I did it for you. You know, it was all right. Okay, I had one more thing to tell you about, which was that Alex and I went to see Megadeth last week in Denver. And the deal was, is that Alex has a really cool friend who lives overseas named Jennifer Summer, and Jennifer's husband's cousin just happens to be the drummer for Megadeth, Dirk Verburen. And about a week or so before the show, we get this package, and it's a pair of Dirk's drumsticks, a Dave Mustaine guitar pick, and two personally autographed pictures from Dirk. And we just thought that was so cool and thoughtful, and we hung the pictures up on the refrigerator. Oh, that is so nice. Unfortunately, the picture that was autographed to me fell off the refrigerator, and Alex's dog ate it. Ah! But that's kind of the way things go for me, so I wasn't exactly shocked. But here's what happened that made up for it. A day or so before the show, Alex gets a message from Jennifer that says, Dirk is putting you on the guest list for the show in Denver. And we were so stoked, and that night we get to the arena and find out we're right down on the floor. And I'm talking front row. And we got there just in time to catch the first band, Hatebreed. And I gotta tell you, for a band named Hatebreed, uh, they are really fun. They're really heavy, but they've just got some great riffs that just groove. And I pretty much rocked my ass off. And it just felt so great to be at a concert again. And I think everybody pretty much felt the same way. It was in Ball Arena, and it was pretty much packed. And I would guess there was about 10,000 there. And for a scary, evil metal show, uh, everyone was just really cool. True lunatics. Uh, the next band was Trivium. I'm not a huge fan of them, but I gotta say they were pretty good. Uh, after that was Lamb of God. And I'll be honest, I'm not a fan. I think they're really talented. The drummer was amazing, and it wasn't Chris Adler. But whoever he was was incredible. And really, the whole band is. I mean, you've got to be to play that stuff. But there's almost no melody whatsoever as far as the vocals, and it just gets kind of boring. This was like the third time I've seen them because they're always opening for somebody. And apparently, they're just really popular, but I just don't get it. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. Whatever that means. But around 9.45, it was time for the headliner, and Megadeth opened with Hangar 18. They also played stuff like Symphony of Destruction, and of course, Peace Cells. But one they did that I had heard that they didn't do anymore was The Conjuring. And I was really happy because I love that song because it slays. But really, their entire set did. They only played for about an hour, but it was just non-stop thrashing, and it was great. Dirk is an absolutely amazing drummer. 
And really, Dave just seemed kind of different this time. Maybe it's everything he's gone through with the cancer and all that, but he just seemed a little more gracious this time. And I know everyone thinks he's kind of an asshole, but he just seemed like he was, uh, I don't know, just uh, kind of happy to be there. But they ended with Holy Wars, and we walked out of there just really happy because it was just so much fun to go to a show again. So thank you to Jennifer for hooking us up with Dirk, and thank you to Dirk for hooking us up with those tickets. We really appreciate it. But it was just a great night, and on the way home, we stopped at McDonald's and got a shake and some fries. And when we got back to the apartment, I took a metformin and washed it down with a cold one. And by cold one, I mean some water. Because you know, I'm an old man, but I just saw Megadeth and they kicked ass. Absolutely powerful. All right, before I go, wanted to mention, please check out my website, montycolvinart.com. I've got some really cool rock star paintings on there. Or if you want to commission me to do something, uh, drop me a line. I've got my email address on there, or you can reach me on Facebook. Christmas is not too far away, and paintings make great gifts. And don't tell me you can't afford it, because I do have payment plans. I've also got my video show, which runs every other week on heavymetaltelevision.net. Hope you'll check that out. I've got episodes coming up about Scott Ian and James Hetfield. It's every other Friday at 8 p.m., no matter where you are. It's called Art That Rocks, and I think you'll really dig it. I mean, what type of weirdness is this? And finally, I don't want to get too political, but I've got to say this. I'm really getting sick and tired of politicians telling me what to do. For instance, they are starting to mandate that you have to get vaccinated before you can go to a concert. Or is it that you have to go to a concert before you can get vaccinated? I'm not sure. Either way, I don't like it. And I mean, what's next? Uh, are they going to start telling us what music we have to listen to? Well, they better not, because that's my job. And so here's my pick of the month. If you know what's good for you, you'll listen to the new CD from the Wild Hearts. As you know, they're my favorite band, and the new album is called 21st Century Love Songs. I've listened to it several times so far, and it rocks. And to show you what I mean, I'm going to play you out with a song called Splitter. And all I ask in return is that if you're not vaccinated, please wear a mask as you're listening to this. Because even though it's been scientifically proven that those stupid masks do absolutely nothing, it'll still make you feel better about yourself. You will do this now! But that's going to do it for me for now. But until next time, this has been Monty saying take care. Don't let anyone tell you what to like. Unless it's me. And rock on!
And that's the end of it.